Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Today we have some books that are all set in America. We have a very strong theme with all of our books and in particular the theme is what it means to be African-American. One of the things I really love about reading is that it creates empathy in readers and when we read a story about a character for a little while we step into the shoes of that character and we get a taste of what it feels like to be that person. And all of the books that we're going to talk about today give a small taste of what it's like to be a person of colour in America. The first book that we are going to discuss is The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. It's a reasonably new release. It's just come out. Uh, Colson won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017 for The Underground Railroad. And this is the next book that he's written after following on the success of that one. And it's based on the Arthur G. Dozier Reform School for Boys. And what an eye-opener it is. Oh, my goodness. There's lots of twists and turns in this book, but um, I'll be careful what I say. So it opens with a prologue set in a graveyard where an office block is being built and bodies are discovered by some university students and it triggers an official investigation. And then the book opens in Chapter 1 with the prime character of the novel and it takes us into his childhood in Tallahassee, Florida in 1962. And his name is Elwood Curtis and he's a young African-American boy who's living with his very strict grandmother. She's rather gorgeous, isn't she? Mm, she is. Yeah, she's a very strict... Southern. Yeah. You can just picture her, can't yes, you? Yes. She's, she's a wonderful character and she really wants to bring him up right. His parents have left. They just took off. And he's received a vinyl album with all of Dr. Martin Luther King's speeches. I think it's Martin Luther King on Zion Hill or something like that. And he basically plays that album over and over on repeat and he learns it off by heart. And his grandmother works in the Richardson Hotel. She's a maid and he gets to spend a lot of time in the hotel with all the other staff being tricked into playing dishwashing competitions, which is a bit sad. (laughs) And then later on, as he grows a bit older, he goes to work for the local Italian man at his newspaper stall. And even though his parents have abandoned him, his grandmother's very, very poor, but she's strict and we know he's a good person and he's got hopes of going to college. I think the reader thinks he's got a good future ahead of him, albeit in 1960s America as a young black kid. It feels hopeful, doesn't it? It does. And and you really are on his side. Mm. And then through no fault of his, he's wrongfully connected to a crime and sent to a reform school for boys. 
And what goes on at the Nichols School is deeply upsetting and shocking. The African-American boys are housed in a vastly inferior building from the white boys and the treatment they receive is just, it's violent, it's criminal, it's shocking, it's horrendous really. The story jumps around a bit, it moves sort of backwards and forwards in time. So there's young Elwood at the Nicol School and then we have an adult Elwood uh, as an older man watching the New York Marathon and he's got a furniture removal business and then there's scenes describing various old boys from the school getting together and talking about their experiences at the school. So it sort of moves back and forward a bit and it is a little bit hard at times to work out where you are. Yeah. I found that I yeah. had to sort of keep reading to concentrate where I was. But the supervisors at the school are horrendous. They're sort of evil. cruel. Evil. Yeah, they are. They're evil. They're cruel. They're abusers. They're pedophiles. And I think the term school is really a very loose one. There are no teaching facilities or books and the standard seems to be about the level of about grade one. And the worst feature of the place is an old white shed way out the back of the property where discipline mm. is handed out under cover of the noise from one or two huge industrial fans. And unfortunately, Elwood discovers what happens out in the White House in the middle of the night very soon after his arrival and once again through no fault of his own. And this was interesting, Lou. I wondered what you thought about this. The story sort of leaps right over the legal proceedings that led to Elwood being yes. in the reform school. So you, you have the incident that leads to him being brought before justice. But as a lawyer, I really wanted, initially when I was reading this, I, I felt like there was this terrible gap and I really wanted to know how did this terrible miscarriage of justice occur? You know, what was he charged with? What was the crime? What did the judge say? But then I, I sort of reflected on it and I thought, actually, it doesn't really matter because for a young male person of colour in the 1960s, this sort of thing happened all yes. the time. Yeah, I, I just got the sense uh, the reason why there was no need for Colson to address that was there was this terrible feeling of inevitability. Yes. Just an complete sense of inevitability that he would be convicted anyway. Yes. I, I loved this book. Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. I, I enjoyed it. It was heartbreaking. It's hard to um, read. And I was really moved by Elwood's attachment to his Martin Luther King album and to Martin Luther King's words. Yeah. I think Elwood gained such a, I don't know, a, a strong notion of right and wrong um, from Martin Luther King and the idea that even when people were doing the wrong thing by you, you should still love them. But sadly for Elwood, you know, as a young man, he thought that other people would abide by that ideal as well. And of course, they didn't. No. What I would love about the book, though, is that it goes on a year 11 and 12 curriculum. Yes. That, that's, to me, it, it's absolutely classic book for yes. curriculum. Yes. That was exactly my thoughts. And, and so I'm not going to say it much more about it because there are lots of twists and turns and things I never saw coming. But I do think it's one of those books that everybody should read, even though there are hard, parts that are very hard to bear. And I really like your idea of, of making it part of a school curriculum because it's very accessible, it's not in difficult language and it would be a great book for a Year 12 syllabus. I think. Yeah, I think so too. So this book reminded me, it brought up so many other books that I've read that I just thought I would mention briefly because they had a very similar impact on me and I thought you might even enjoy them, Lou. The first one is a book called Speak No Evil 
by Uzo Dinma Ewela. And it's set in more recent times, but there's a young boy named Nuru, and he's from a very wealthy background in Washington, D.C. Mm. His parents are academics. There's a large community of black academics, very well-educated, very comfortable. And he has a white friend, a platonic friend, a girl named Meredith. I think in the book he's about 18, 17, 18. And they both have their various teenage struggles. And Nero comes out as being gay and his father is horrified and he calls in the local family pastor to try and talk him around and then he takes him back for a trip back to Nigeria. You can imagine how that goes. And then after he comes back to Washington with the family, there's a terrible incident, which I won't elaborate on, but someone doesn't speak up and there are terrible consequences, and it's an incredibly powerful book. So similar impact on you to the Nickel Boys. I loved that. Another one, which I'm actually only halfway through, which is Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenyat. Hard to pronounce. It's so powerful that I have to read it in small bursts because it's a collection of short stories, but it has the same punch that the Nickel Boys has. For example, the opening story is called The Finkelstein Five. It uses sort of exaggeration and a bit of satire to make a point, and it does it beautifully. But one of the things that really impacted me was the young boy in it. Uh, I think his name is Emmanuel. And the first thing he does every morning is he wakes up and he decides on his blackness. And he either dials it up or dials it down. So when he's answering the phone, he'll dial his blackness down until he knows who he's speaking to. And I really felt like I was inside this kid's head. Are they based in America? Yes, yes. And and pretty grim at times, but still another one really worth reading and and another one that would be great on a school syllabus. And in the present day? Yeah, very modern, that one as well. Yeah, okay. And then the third one, which I would also recommend, which had a similar impact on me, is The Sellout by Paul Beatty, which won the Man Booker Prize in 2016. And it's a wild ride. I'm absolutely convinced that Paul Beatty is a genius. He is extremely well-read and well-educated. It's a modern-day comedic satire. And the opening sentence is, this may be hard to believe coming from a black man, but I've never stolen anything. And really gets you in. And basically what happens is this young guy decides to go around, he turns everything on its head and he goes around reinstating slavery and resegregating America. (laughs) Just tipping everything on its head like that is such a vibrant and visual way of seeing the world as it is Mm. by flipping it around Mm. the other way. And it it was met with a lot of acclaim and it's brilliant. I actually want to read it again. A lot of the cultural references went over my head, being an Australian, and yet I still absolutely loved it. So those are the three that I would really recommend if, if you enjoy The Nickel Boys. Well, I read this week, as indeed I know you have as well, An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. Yes. It was published last year to critical acclaim. I think it was in the US bestseller list for almost a year in the top 20. Uh, And, of course, it was an Oprah book 
uh, ah. club list, which is always a good thing mm. to be on Oprah's list. Yes. And I believe that Oprah has now bought the movie rights. Oh, how wonderful. And then in April this year, it was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, which is an extremely prestigious award in the UK. Well, actually, it's an extremely prestigious award anyway. And in June, it was announced that Yari has actually won that award this year, which is fantastic. Um, and so I will come back to the Women's Prize for Fiction. So remind me, Virginia, okay. if, I, if I don't get there. American Marriage is a book that I can heartily recommend. I absolutely loved it. It's a very deft and, and tender account of a modern marriage in complete crisis. And at times it's utterly heartbreaking, but I, I don't think it's ever bleak. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Yeah. It's quite positive. It is. Given the story. Yes, it's, it's, and at times quite uplifting as well. So Roy and Celestial are a southern black couple who are part of what is described as the post-integration African-American generation. So they've both had college educations and they're both quite driven and on the road to success. Roy is from Louisiana and Celestial is from Atlanta. And we learn that Roy is proud He's a very proud man, actually, and he's ambitious. He's perhaps sensitive to the fact that his family is not quite as well healed as his wife's family, but he's very determined not to be held back, and he's very determined that any children that he and Celestial have won't be constantly reminded of the struggles yes. of their forebears. Yes, it's a very common thing, isn't it, with wanting different things for the next generation? Absolutely, absolutely. Their, their parents constantly school them in the struggle, uh, and really they reject it because mm. life is a lot easier mm. for them. Mm. Now, the chapters in the book alternate between the perspectives of Roy and Celestial and then later in the book between Roy, Celestial and their friend Andre, Dre, as Celestial calls him, and he was Celestial's childhood neighbour and close friend. And it's actually through Andre that Roy initially meets Celestial briefly at university. But she must have made a strong impression on Roy because he recognises her five years later yes. at the Manhattan restaurant where she's working part-time while she's at graduate art school in New York. I don't know about you, Virginia, but I found Roy's chapters more intimate. I think Celestial's, she's quite feisty, she's fiercely independent, but she's more comfortable in herself. Yes. And I found her more assured and more guarded than Roy. Yes. She's beginning to make a name for herself in the art world. She makes these high-end and intricately crafted, handcrafted dolls with quite lifelike faces. And what Tahari Jones has done is she sort of created this very strong sense of sort of gentle southern manners. Yes. And there's a sort of a formality almost in their communications and there's a restraint which, again, it's, it's not something that we're familiar with. No. But you really get that strong southern restraint through the book. Yeah. The book first introduces us to Roy and Celestial when they've already been married for only a year and a half and they're back living in Atlanta. It's the Labor Day weekend and they drive to Louisiana for a weekend to spend with Roy's parents. I'm not going to say a lot about Roy's parents or Celestial's parents, but they're quite strong characters through the book. Yes, they are. And the relationships with their parents and with the family generally is also quite strong. And it's during the Labor Day weekend that Roy is arrested and he's charged with having raped a woman, a stranger, in a Louisiana motel room, a crime which he didn't commit and which Celestial and his family know he hasn't committed, and he's later sentenced to 12 years jail. And this obviously turns Roy and Celestial's world upside down. You know, the book is obviously concerned with yet another black 
American man who has been unjustly incarcerated. But the book really focuses on the marriage. Yes, because it's a real no-win situation, isn't it? Absolutely. So we know what's happened. We know that he's in jail, but it's really about the relationship between them and the other people in their lives. And much of it is told through letters that are sent between Roy in jail and Celestial trying to get on with her life. Yes. And I don't think I should say any more. No. Well, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought the writing was beautiful. She had mm. some divine similes mm. that made me sort of stop and just yeah. reread yeah. them. I, so there's some beautiful writing. I can see why she won the Woman's Prize. And I'm as we're speaking, I can actually see that this would make a beautiful adaptation to screen with yeah. those beautiful, beautiful dolls. And I'm picturing Celestial. She's very tall and sort of a, a big presence. I think it was an interesting thing that Tayari Jones did because she didn't make either of them particularly likeable or she certainly made them fallible. We know that Roy has probably been unfaithful <laughs> in the marriage yes. um, and he's certainly been a real player before he linked up with her and there's a suggestion that he that she found a receipt for some silk lingerie yes. that she never received. Well, she received one piece yeah, one, but not yeah, the not other the, two. Not the other, <laughs> exactly. And uh, so he, he's no saint, although we do know that he is innocent of this charge and that she was his alibi and he absolutely did not commit the crime that he was jailed for. And Celestial is an interesting character because to me she was a little bit self-absorbed mm, and, and pretty selfish yeah. and um, quite cool. very cool in the way she dealt with the yeah. fact that her husband had gone off to jail for potentially what was going to be the best years of their, their marriage or the mm. best forthcoming years of their marriage and her childbearing years. So at times it moved a little bit slowly for me. But overall, I really loved it. And I, I was just racing through it because I really wanted to know how, yes, how, it, how, ended. how it ended. And another one with lots of twists and turns that Absolutely. we can't reveal. Absolutely. One uh, review that I read, which I will put in the show notes, summed the book up in a wonderful phrase, which was, nobody is at fault, but everyone is wounded. Oh, yes. And I just thought that was absolutely yep. perfect Nails for it. this book. Yep. So, yeah, do yep. read An American Marriage by Tiari Jones. It's fabulous. And I, oh, look, I, yeah, look, I better mention the Women's Prize for Fiction, hadn't I? Yes. Um, it used to be called the Orange Prize for Fiction, and then it was the Paley's Irish Cream Prize for Fiction. <laughs> but thank goodness, since 2017, it's simply the Women's Prize for Fiction. The prize was originally inspired to recognise the literary achievement of female writers. And I think way back in 1991, the Booker Prize was announced, and none of the six shortlisted books was by a woman. Wow. Yeah, despite 65% of books at the time being written by women, hmm. uh, fiction being written by female authors. And so a group of men and women in the industry got together and as a result this prize was born. And it, it, it is a very lucrative prize. It's £30,000. And then you also get a sculpture called the Bessie. Oh. And that, that's a little bit of I trivia. no idea about A little this. bit of trivia. It's actually created by an artist called Grizzle Niven, who is the sister of the actor David Niven. Unbelievable. Yeah. So typically the nominees are announced in March and then the winner is announced in June. And... 
the people who select the winner are a board of five well-known or leading women in literacy. And this year, Dolly Alderton was on the... She's a, we are a big fan of Dolly Alderton at the Diving In podcast, and uh, she was on the list. I'd forgotten that. You're right, mm. yeah. There are actually a few books on the list this year that I am desperate to read, uh, in addition to Tahari's. You may have already read them, Virginia, but I really want to read Ordinary People, by Diane Evans. I'm very, very keen to read that. And also Milkman by Anna Burns. Yes, I've got that on audio. It's really good. What have you been diving into this week, Virginia? I've got two things that I'm dying to tell you about because I just think that they're right up your alley, Lou. So one thing that I've been diving into in a big way is a podcast called 20,000 Hertz, H-E-R-T-Z. Right. Have you heard of this No, I haven't. Love it. (laughs) And it's all about sounds and noise, and it is absolutely fascinating. It's been going for quite a while, and there are so many interesting episodes all about different sounds and noises and the backgrounds to them, so that the... I think the first ever episode is the one about recording the voice for Siri on our iPhones. And it opens with the story about the woman who was the original Siri and how she didn't actually know that she was (laughs) Siri until someone rang her up and said, is this you? And played it to her and she said, oh, yes. What, so she's not been given any credit for it Well, no, she's an actor and I think she does voiceovers. Imagine the royalty she'd get every time her voice. Can you imagine? And she went into a studio and they gave her a whole lot of sounds and asked her to record them. She didn't know what they were for. She had to do all sorts of interesting things like eliding sounds, which is running one sound into into another. another. Yes. So it's a fascinating episode about how they make sounds and how they run them together. And it's quite All the editing. All the editing. It's very, very interesting. There's another brilliant one about the evolution of accents, which I found fascinating because they look at the accents, the American accent, and and where whether it's sort of a frozen-in-time accent that the fleet that landed at Plymouth in America had and whether it's frozen in time then uh, and what the accents were like back in the UK in Britain at the time Mm. and talks about all the different R's and Mm. different northern accents in the UK and brilliant, absolutely fascinating. There's another really gorgeous one about plants that sing. It's very technical but little technical devices are put on plant leaves and then they're turned into sort of a file and they make this sort of musical sound. I can't really explain it better wow. than that, but it's gorgeous and it's really that's really worth but a what, listen. As, as the plant is growing? Yes, and, okay. and it changes as the plant is held by people and if people are in the room. Oh, wow. Cha- the the, the energy. temperature maybe as yes, well. Yes. Wow. I'm going to listen to that one oh, again because I was doing things while I yeah. – you would love it, yeah. Lou. There's one about deafness. Oh. And the cochlear implant, oh, okay. which is also very interesting. And then yesterday I listened to a fascinating one about the Stradivarius violin and what makes the Stradivarius violin special and how the types of wood that Stradivari used make the sound that the violin makes particular to those violins and the different resins that he used. And it goes into the level of detail of the types of trees that were around in the year that he was making them in 17-whatever were trees that had been cut down after there had been a very cold, short winter. So the wood had a certain density that it didn't have at other times and that makes a difference to the timbre of the violin. It's really fascinating. So I think you would love that podcast, Lou. Uh, There's many more there. I've 
I've only listened to a handful of them, but it's a really oh, good we'll one. Oh, put that on the show notes. Yes. And then the other thing that I've uh, been diving into, I've absolutely been glued to in the last few days, is a five-part Netflix series called The Family. Oh. Have you no, watched I haven't. this one? Your boys will love this, Lou. It's a documentary about a highly secret Christian group, which was started by a Norwegian man oh. named Abraham Varady. Yes. And then in 1969, when he died, it was taken over by a guy named Doug Coe. And Doug Coe was the leader of this highly secret Christian group from 69 and he died in 2017. And he's described in the documentary as the most influential man in Washington that you've never heard of. Wow. And the family, it's also called The Fellowship, is all about political power and they have a belief that leaders are chosen by God. It's bipartisan and the focus is very much on the teachings of Jesus and there's this house in Arlington, Virginia, that looks a bit like the White House, this beautiful big White House with pillars called the Cedars. And all these politicians come and have meetings there. And then on the site in the grounds, there are two lots of quarters. There's one lot of quarters for teenage boys and one for teenage girls. And the teenage boys pay money to come and live in, it's called Ivanwold, and they basically rake leaves and clean toilets and do all sorts of jobs. And they have these fellowship meetings and basically sort of the next generation, I suppose, coming through in this group. And it's a group that does not want anyone to know about it. And it's been exposed a couple of times, one by a guy called Jeff Charlotte, who's friend came into Ivanwald and then invited him in. He's a young Jewish guy or half Jewish guy who uh, has become a journalist and he lived in Ivanwald for a while and then uh, wrote, kept diaries and has written two books about it, pretty much exposed the whole thing, I think, to their chagrin. And then there's also been some in investigators who have uh, looked into it. I just find I just find it extraordinary that these sort of organisations are still existing, really, mm -hmm. and that people are so complicit and obedient. Yes, it's the yes. obedience that we don't seem to have here. Yes, it's it is the most incredible thing. So there was a governor called Mark Sanford in South Carolina, and he was exposed as having an affair with a woman in his office, and uh, he gave a press conference and exposed the group. There's a big townhouse in Washington called C Street. Uh, which is their Washington headquarters. headquarters. And, well, he spilled the beans. He shouldn't have. Yes, he shouldn't okay. have said anything because then immediately this press conference, and you can see there are hundreds of journalists. So immediately everybody wants to know, well, what the heck is C Street? C -Street. And some people then got a, a pretty prominent lawyer to investigate the tax-free status and look at all their financial records, which reveal a lot actually. Oh. But what the family do or the fellowship do is they run the National Prayer Breakfast, which is an annual event oh, in yes. Washington. You would have seen yes. it on yes, the news. No, absolutely. They've got footage of every politician, oh, so every they president. They are behind it. You think it's just a one morning prayer breakfast in a big ballroom in the Hilton, but it's actually grown to be a week-long event with networking and it has leaders from African countries and Romania and lots of Russians all networking and the philosophy is just fellowship and Jesus and that sort of thing. It's fascinating. So they have a reach into countries all throughout the world, including Australia. 
and they've spent a lot of time and resources flying members who are serving congressmen into countries in Africa and Romania, meeting up with various dictators like Gaddafi and Sani Abacha in Nigeria. Oh, I'm definitely going to watch this. And these people do not have the imprimatur of the American government mm. to make representations mm. on behalf of the government to these people. They just go in there and have meetings with them on private planes. Mm. And, of course, this is all in direct opposition to the concept of separation of church and state, mm. which is one of the fundamental principles of democracy. So there's a lot of journalists who are very concerned about it. So it's fascinating. The most striking thing for me, though, Lou, was the complete absence of any women at all. Mm. So there, there is this house of teenage women at the Cedars in Virginia, but from what you can see on the documentary, it just appears that they are selected purely with the aim of getting them to marry the boys Mm, in, okay. in the boy house. So when we're thinking about the patriarchy, this seems to be one glaring example that's hiding in plain sight. Yes, it's just extraordinary. Yep. And as I say, the fact that people go along with yeah. this. Yeah, it's they're very just, defensive about it. Yeah, so. and yeah. So I recommend that one to you. I, yeah, I can't love wait it, to watch that. So Lou, what have you been diving into? Well, I've not been diving into anything anywhere nearly as highbrow as you, Virginia, it has to be said. I have been catching up on Poor Man's Netflix, which is SBS On Demand, which I love. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Michael Connolly's crime books. Michael Connolly is a writer from Los Angeles, and he's best known for his books about the LAPD detective Hieronymus Bosch, Harry Bosch. So he's named after the, the Dutch painter Hieronymus well, Bosch. Well, yes, is the, the, that is mentioned way back in one of his books. It's an interesting yeah, choice, isn't but it? But you, you don't know much about Harry's family in the books. You do know about his brother, Mickey Haller, who is the Lincoln lawyer, of ah. which there has been a, a movie made. And some of Connolly's books do involve both Harry and Mickey at the same time. But ordinarily, they're either a book about Harry or it's a book about Mickey. Finally, three years ago, they started to make the TV series of Bosch. And the fifth series has just been released. And so I've been catching up on that. And Michael Connolly really captures very atmospheric Los Angeles. And I think that he has certainly consulted and collaborated with them on the TV series. And it's fantastic. And does the character that plays Harry Bosch yeah. uh, match up with yes, your absolutely. mental image yeah, from when you were reading it? Absolutely. Oh, that's really You good. know, often when you read a book and then you see a TV series, then you can't read a book again without seeing that mm. character. But he was so perfect for Hieronymus Bosch. It's an actor called Titus Welliver, and he's he has all the cool and restraint, and he's just absolutely superb as Harry Bosch. Oh, and and the flaws, of which there are many. Um, Harry lives in the Hollywood Hills, uh, and he lives there with his 15-year-old daughter because his wife has died. This series still has a lot in it from some of the early books. They've very cleverly matched together some story arcs from various books and so I can really recommend Bosch and then yesterday when I should have been doing some work I unfortunately <laughs> started watching a new SBS TV series absolutely sensational it's called Back to Life it's a dark comedy Sounds great. And it's English. It's set in a sort of maybe seaside town in England, you know, somewhere in Kent maybe. And it's the story of Miri, 
who is a girl who was a lady who was jailed for committing a horrendous crime oh. when she was in her teenage years. This matches our theme. It does our match American our theme. Marriage, yeah. um, except she wasn't wrongfully convicted. Oh, okay. <laughs> or was she? Or was she? Right. And she returns to live with her parents. And it, oh. and it's hysterical. It's awful, but it's very, very so you're funny sort of as well. Cringing and laughing absolutely, at the same Absolutely, absolutely. I'm not giving anything away in the first series. Obviously, the locals are not very happy to see her back, and boxes of dog feces land on oh, their no. doorstep, and the very poor communication between her parents. Her mother is played by Geraldine James. I love her. Who is she's superb. great. Uh, and in fact, there's lots of people in the cast whom you will recognise, and it's really, really funny, and it's addictive. So please watch Back to that Life. That sounds fantastic, Lou. Oh, I'm hungry now. Okay, well, Are we, you hungry? I'm very hungry. <laughs> I'm going to make you some pancakes. That sounds wonderful, Luke. <laughs> I thought that this week I needed to honour our American tradition, our southern tradition, and I wanted to make a steep fried chicken. Oh. <laughs> but I just thought yeah, we really don't in the need interests it. of yeah. good health. Yeah, we really don't need it. Uh, so I use, instead of marinating chicken in, in buttermilk, I decided to make buttermilk pancakes. So clever. It's such a clever idea. Now, if we were in Georgia, Atlanta, we would, of course, have them with cream and Georgia peaches, but I'm afraid yeah. I've only got blueberries. No, that sounds beautiful, Lou. So mm. I'm going to cook us sounds some blueberry fantastic. pancakes. fantastic. We really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too. You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us because that will mean we can grow our audience. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in.